You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. Western culture is preoccupied by notions of firsts, from the more mundane versions, our first words, our first kiss, our first romantic relationship, to grander ones, the first person on the moon, the first person to have climbed Mount Everest. I actually had to look that up. It's both Edmund Hillary and Tenzinga Norgay, by the way. One of my personal favorite debates around first is actually that iconic comedy routine by Bud Abbott and Lou Costello, Who's on First? This burlesque comedy is famous for the confusion generated by preconceived assumptions and a kind of classic reciprocal misunderstanding. I've added a link in my show notes in case you've never seen it. You really must. Who, indeed, is on first? Well, the dialogue around the first Canadian author sometimes produces as much confusion and ambiguity, if not comedy, or maybe some comedy. Who is the first? And why do we think that? And why is it even important that we know? Canlit scholars have been disputing this for some time, but largely consensus falls around the British author Frances Brooke and her novel The History of Emily Montague, written in 1769. I've had several conversations with colleagues and friends who sometimes insinuate that Canlit doesn't extend further back than, say, 25 or 30 years. But this novel is one indication of several that actually we've produced about three centuries worth, if not more, of literature in Canada. Back to Brooke. Frances Brooke is often regarded as an originary figure in Canadian literature. To be clear, Definitely not in Indigenous literatures. And this is also, I suppose, debatable given the fact that she spent an altogether brief period in Lower Canada, a period of about five years or a really long cup of coffee, before she returned to England where she wrote the novel. It's yet recognized for its early evocations of Lower Canada, for its attempt to delineate the beginnings of a European culture, certainly not Indigenous ones, and for making evident early attitudes toward the colony. Well, just to make things interesting, today I have with me a special guest by the name of Dr. Catherine Reddy. Dr. Reddy is an associate professor from the University of Winnipeg, where she teaches in 18th century British literature. She's talking to me today about the history of Emily Montague. I did say when I started this podcast that I'd be going well back in time, so She's going to help me do that today as we discuss the disputably first Canadian novel. Or is it really a British novel? You'll just have to listen to our discussion to find out. Here's my conversation with Dr. Catherine Reddy. Dr. Catherine Reddy, thank you for joining me today on Getting Lit with Linda. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you, Linda, for inviting me. So let's talk a little bit about this book Listeners are going to find it a little odd that I have an 18th century literature specialist on a podcast that's about Canadian literature. 
So why have I invited you, Kate, to join me on the podcast? Well, this book is really interesting in in the history of 18th century literature. It it fits really well into the uh, the development, the history of the development of the novel in Britain. So as you mentioned, I think already it's an epistolary narrative. So it's a narrative that's written in letters between several characters. I actually didn't say that. So that's good for the readers to know that. And, you know, that would be in the same tradition as something like Samuel Richardson's Pamela. So that particular novel famously was developed by Richardson out of letter writing manuals that he did uh, he I didn't know that yes yeah so he started out basically you know he was an an upwardly mobile uh, you know started off as an apprentice to a a bookseller Mm -hmm. and worked his way up and was self-taught really in many ways and uh, and that was sort of how he got his own start as a, as a writer, is uh, producing letters that were meant to be models for people who were, you know, newly literate, a kind of no generation kidding. that were, they were newly literate, and, but didn't necessarily know the, the protocols of, of letter writing. So we're acquiring gentility. So part of the same project that you can see Joseph Addison and Richard Steele participating in with mm-hmm. their spectator papers the uh, this this effort to try and acquire the the necessary finish to to pass in polite society and the narrative of Pamela which is about a young servant girl there's an attempt at seduction by her master it grew out of letters that he was he was writing as models <laughs> to help young servant girls get out of those kinds of tricky Tricky situations situations (laughs) with their employers and then the narrative kind of evolved from there and it was a you know a best-selling sensation I mean Pamela in many ways was sort of the beginning of uh, of literature that appealed to just such a a wide spectrum Mm -hmm. that it was it was a cultural phenomenon Daniel Defoe you know, had that with Robinson Crusoe, but Richardson, I mean, the stories are, it was, you know, it was published in two parts. You know, this is a spoiler alert here, but, uh, <laughs> spoiler alert. but Pamela, you know, after resisting her, her master's effort, he kidnaps her, he takes her away to a country home and continues to work away. He hires a bod to try to corrupt her virtue. She continues to withstand his advances he attempts to sexually assault her at one point and then loses his nerve and, and can't bring himself to racy, go through with it. Novel. And um, But in the end, he is reformed through the effect of her letter writing. And he, he starts off stealing her letters and then becomes obsessed with them. And it's really interesting. The letters become almost a substitute for her, for her, for her body. And he... You know, there's a, a scene in which he sort of searches her for letters and he's, you know, he's no longer interested in, you know, sort of taking her virtue, but he wants, he wants to get his hands on the letters. And through that letter writing, you know, he realizes that he's, he's done wrong and he ends up proposing marriage to her and she accepts him and they live happily ever after well until part two and you know uh, that goes on but uh, that's yeah. a good that's a really good introduction to 
Frances Brooks novel because she was influenced by Samuel Richardson and she is, as you say, employing the epistolary mode. And so yep. the novel also offers us this kind of moral curve, if you will, moral trajectory whereby the characters are changed and altered by their interactions with each other through the letters. So let's talk a little bit about this. First of all, let's talk a little bit about Frances Brooke, because again, she's a British writer, but she's claimed by both British literary scholars and Canadian literary scholars. So you've located her within a British literary tradition. Within a Canadian literary tradition, uh, she's seen as being important because she she emphasizes the context of the place, right? She highlights the features, the geographical terrain. So she's in effect writing back to a British audience about various elements of Canadian culture. So we can start, I suppose, there. Yes, and I mean, we must situate her also within the tradition of travel writing. And there's a debt to that you know, that history, that, tra- that tradition, and, and journalism, the rise of journalism. So different forms of nonfiction mm-hmm. that are, are really obtaining a, a popular, a wide popular audience, starting even in the 17th century and then carrying through. And this really is the, the first era of globalization, although, of course, different yes, of eras course. have claimed that, that title. But the appetite the market for stories about voyages that really mm-hmm. uh, and that influences clearly the the history of the novel too and I mean Daniel Defoe to return to him I mean he was a journalist as well as a novel writer and mm-hmm. the line between fact and fiction was very blurry you know in, in his and actually in Pamela too the, you know the first novels what we would you know, identify as the first novels, although, you know, there's a tradition of prose fiction that goes Mm -hmm. way further Mm -hmm. back. And, you know, the line between romance and realism is Mm -hmm. itself a very blurry one. But that is sort of seen as a a point of of, uh, dividing line is, is this new, uh, upwardly mobile bourgeois readership that's interested in, in facts, in true history, and the novel that, as part of the effort to establish itself as a respectable genre, lays claim to being true history. Is that what is that the appeal that Francis Brooks' novel had for the, for a British audience? That it was seen as a kind of factual representation of the place, and so she. I think the travel writing, those those parts of the narrative, you know, where. They're related by William Firmer oh, for the most part, although we should let the yeah, readers we, know we, that William Firmer is a character in the. So there are several characters who are writing letters in this book, and William Firmer is one of the characters. He's the father of a secondary. Arabella Firmer. Arabella, Arabella Firmer. She's a secondary character. We'll come to the characters in just a minute. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. But those could be taken straight out of you know of a work of travel writing. Mm. And uh, there are a number of characters where they're, you know, they're conveying their impressions. There, we'll maybe talk a bit more about this, but the whole aesthetic of the sublime and the beautiful, and the the kind of the background of 18th century tourism, you know, right. tourism that is becoming a a more broadly popular activity for a, an increasingly wealthy middle class too, and particular aesthetic 
theories that are contributing to the the interest in landscape. Of course, there's a great interest in the geopolitical situation. I mean, we're coming out of the Seven Years' War. This is written in the the years immediately after that, and the the famous Battle of the Plains of Abraham. You know, where the the English and the French generals die, and that scene that's commemorated. Uh, very powerfully in, in visual cultures during during this period too. It explains so much about the depictions of French and English relations in this book. But before we even embark on that, let's just talk a little bit about the plot so that the listeners, I think I said readers earlier, you can tell I'm dealing with two audiences here. If we could just talk a little bit about what the listeners might expect if they picked up this book. What's What's the plot of the book? Really, I mean, this is classic to the novel in the 18th century. I mean, you've got a, a love plot. And in fact, there are several love plots. So uh, this is, you know, the, the debt of the novel to comedy, the whole tradition of comedy. And I think there's links you could even make to, you know, Shakespearean comedy where you've got the multiple marriage mm-hmm. plots and uh, everybody's, <laughs> you know, getting hitched by the, the end of it. And so, you know, the main love plot is uh, between Edward or Ned Rivers and Emily Montague. And it's interesting that, you know, she's... Is it Montague? Is that how you pronounce the last name? I... I think you could pronounce it different ways. Okay. That would be how I would. I, might, I may have been mispronouncing this the entirety of my my teaching career. I don't know about that. I think you know there's always some, and you know we don't have recordings, and we 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 can't so we, hear we how people pronounced particular names. Um, so yeah, I think there is some some leeway and, and room for interpretation. But you know they're the main couple and the one the most star-crossed pair of lovers because of the fact that she is engaged to someone else when Clayton Monmouth, Sir Sir Clayton Monmouth, I think is the name. But yes, he's he's engaged to Emily and Ed Rivers appears on the The, scene. The pompous fiancé, (laughs) yes, who's on paper a great match, but in reality... Is a bit of a fop, I think, is the word. That yes, they, yeah. <laughs> and interestingly, seems to have. I mean, Emily talks about this. Is is when he he's acquired wealth, and the wealth has actually spoiled him, and he was mm. more humble and and a more bearable match, and in mm. fact, a match that she had convinced herself was a good match, and and if it had not been for her encounter with Edward. I think the senses as readers, she would have ended up with mm-hmm. that original with the... fiance, even though it's a very delicate situation for her to extricate herself from the the scandal from breaking off a, a match could be social ruin for that's what I Emily. Think the listeners and... need to know, pardon me, Kate, but I think that's what the listeners need to know that that breaking off a match in this period for someone else would have been it might have completely ruined her reputation and so it was something that was a danger for a woman I was likening this to um, contemporary rom-coms the love romance main uh, plot line and there's elements of humor but really we have to understand that this kind of risk underscores what Emily then attempts to do which is to break off the match with her fiance so she can be with Ed Rivers Yes, although that can't be the reason that she ever acknowledges even to herself. And so there's a, 
the kind of element of self-deception, which is interesting because other characters too around them know from the very beginning that these two are in love with each other and they're meant for one another and yet they can't fully be transparent in mm -hmm. the way that they, they act with mm -hmm. one another. And then we've got other pairs so Arabella, Arabella Firmer, we've mentioned already, you know, whose name significantly is, uh, is that of the real-life model of uh, Belinda in Alexander Pope's The Rape of the Lock. Mm -hmm. And she is the, the witty foil to the demure Emily and the flirt, the coquette as that particular type, personality type would have been known mm -hmm. in, uh, in the 18th century and and in the rape of the lock, I mean, it's it's all about the the coquette mm -hmm. Belinda, who who uh, is the coquette there. So we're talking about Belinda and uh, uh, Belinda as a kind of source or prototype for Arabella, Arabella but Farmer. Arabella is a, a lot funnier and lighter she than is, the actual. She, I prototype. mean, in the rape of the lock, Belinda says nothing. You know, she is, well, she gets, a, you know, she gets some speeches towards the end, but mm. she's not a fully fleshed out fully character, character in the same way that Arabella mm. is. And, you know, that's sort of been one of the interesting parts of the, you know, in the history of the readership is that readers have, have tended to gravitate and to, to like Arabella mm. much mm. more than Emily herself, who can be. You know, she's a little bit boring. She's a little bit staid in, in some ways. Although, of course, to Edward Rivers, I mean, she's the epitome of idealized femininity and mm. the, the woman of sensibility. She is the woman of sensibility. Yes. And, uh, yes. and Ned is the man of sensibility. And that's why they are perfectly paired, the two of them together. Almost perfectly paired. So this is something that I'd like us to talk a little bit about. There is the rival character for the heart or the love of Ed Rivers. It's Madame de Roche. She is quote-unquote a Canadian. We would understand that now as someone who is French-Canadian. And she is competition for Emily. Emily. Yes, and... I agree. I think she's a far more fascinating and appealing character than Emily again. So, I agree. Yeah, I completely yeah. agree. Um, Emily's really a bit milk toasty, you know, to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, and I mean, the really interesting thing about Madame de Roche is that, I mean, she loves Edward Rivers and loves him to the point that she is able to let him go. She knows that he prefers Emily. Mm. And she and Emily develop a, a friendship, although it's an awkward kind of friendship. Exactly. Yeah, and exactly. at the same time, she refuses to stop loving Edward. It's so interesting. I, I find this one of the more intriguing aspects of the novel because the female heroine of sensibility is usually the one we admire the most. But in point of fact, I feel like this is a moment where it almost escapes Francis Brooks' own imaginative design because Madame de Roche, to my mind, is someone who is almost more appealing, is in fact more appealing to my mind than Emily because she's mature and she's grounded. And as you say, she loves Edward Rivers, but she models what real love looks like because she is prepared to let him go. She doesn't engage in 
any disrespectful behavior with Emily, and even Emily no. finds herself seduced by her. Yes, Emily does not want to like her at all, and she can't help herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Madame de Roche is, is too attractive for her to resist. Well, when we think about the kind of political underbelly of this novel, that Madame de Roche is meant to represent, in some ways, Canada, mm-hmm. and Emily is meant to represent Britain, and in fact, spoiler alert, Edward and Emily do make it back to England. That kind of binary is interesting when we consider that there we're looking also much more broadly at a Canada versus England binary. Yes, and I mean, we have Canada that's been newly acquired as a colony, you know, through the end of the resolution of the Seven Years' War and uh, the Battle of the Plains of Abraham and... Yet there's, you know, this interesting, because the, this is a long-standing French colony, the settlers there are French settlers, mm-hmm. uh, and they are not forcing those settlers to, you know, go back to Europe. They are effectively, you know, now the, the people of this colony, which is, you know, of a, of a British colony, they are having to negotiate living in this British colony when they're in some ways depicted in some of the letters in the most disparaging ways but Madame de Mm -hmm. shows us that they're actually also these wonderful virtuous and seductive characters too yes yeah yeah particularly you know the the sort of rural peasantry they're Mm -hmm. they're depicted in a negative light and that sort of age-old you know sort of rationale that the people that have settled the land here are not making as good use of it as they could <laughs> under, you know, our stewardship and our, you know, our, uh, our, our leadership, that that becomes, you know, sort of implicit propaganda on behalf of exactly. the, uh, the new British government that's in charge. And of course, we could also talk about the representations of indigenous peoples in this novel we, too. We, let's let's go yeah. there since we're on that. Yes, on that topic. yeah. That and I mean, you know, there's there's so much that you know that is in this novel that it's just classic colonialist, you know, sort of uh, discourse. Discourse. Mm-hmm. You know, so you've got as we talked about this kind of French rural, you know, peasantry in this this society that's represented as feudal and backward, you know, not exactly. like this advanced modern commercial society. And we can't forget that the whole the whole discourse of sensibility is caught up with the discourse of, of commerce, politeness, refinement, sensibility. The, these are the hallmarks of a truly advanced, quote unquote, society and exactly. uh, you have stadial theory that's really in the background explain uh, that for our listeners so uh, there was a prevailing theory in the 18th century that all of society is a universal you know sort of explanation of human society passed through different stages of development so you know you start off in a state of nature and then you have you know hunting and gathering mm-hmm. and fishing then you've got agriculture, of course, feudalism that goes along with that. So that's where the, the French peasantry, you know, in Canada is at. Mm-hmm. And then you've got your modern commercial society and, you know, the development of commerce that's seen as, mm-hmm. as synonymous with the idea of, of progress, advancement. The idea of progress is often thought to have 
have been born in the 18th, from the 18th century. And, yes. uh, you know, and obviously the indigenous people, they're, they're at the way at the, at the back. And, you know, there's, I guess there's also pastor shepherding that I missed in there. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's different stages, four stages, sort mm-hmm. of the standard line, although there's different kind of variations on that. And, and of course, that's an implicit, again, argument for, for colonialism and, the idea of improvement and progress that's that's being brought to these you know these this backward wilderness and in quotation in marks, quotation marks. In yeah. Quotation marks. yeah and I mean you could even argue that that some of the discourse the picturesque and the sublime and the and the the, the representations of wilderness you know they they fit with with this whole colonialist picture that's that's yes. developing yes. because you know it's the the emptiness uh, the uh, the supposed emptiness of yes. this land uh, and that which, is so which justifies the this... justifies coming in and i mean there's a kind of interesting moment early on in the in the novel when Edward's talking with his you know he's writing back and forth writing to his friend Jack Temple, Jack Temple yes. who is he's you know the foil for him he's the rake who ends up reforming which is you know going back to Richards and Pamela but the two of them are talking about you know this this land that you know Ned is in and and yeah he he says I, I don't understand you know why we have these continual wars in Europe when there's all this land that's that's just available for the taking here and why aren't we all just here and just you know dividing Uh, all this up and not rather than fighting you know fighting each other in Europe and that's the other part of this novel of the plot is that uh, that Ned is you know he's a a soldier Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have an inheritance. And so he's come to Canada because he doesn't want to stretch and thin out the family resources. So his mother and sister, who are on a limited income, you know, presumably after the father has died, and and he doesn't want to be a burden. And so he's come to seek his fortune and he wants land. And there's also an interesting analogy. He talks about, you know, how he's going to... uh, Start off with elk and bear, I think, as his subjects, <laughs> yes, and then right. I forgot about and then that. he will sort of, you know, multiply the human face divine. So he'll he'll get human mm-hmm. subjects, and and then you know his friend Jack turns that into a sex joke. Mm-hmm. Yes, you'll be multiplying a lot of face divine, you know, in <laughs> in Canada, and that's an interesting aspect of the novel too, because none of that actually comes to fruition. Mm-hmm. So they end up back in England, as you said. Mm-hmm. He abandons all those those potential prospects because his mother is going into decline. That's uh, right. She misses her her son so much that there's pressure on him to return. There's so much pressure on the male characters, these male characters, to succeed. This is the the masculine project, right? They are charged with the responsibility of caring for their mothers, their their sisters, their daughters, and so on. When he returns back to England, we have another colony that's mentioned. I wonder yes. if you could address that. Just well, a that, bit. that's really interesting because there's a there's a reference to the figure of the nabob at the very beginning of uh, the novel, mm. and you know the idea of kind of going off to the colonies to to make your fortunes, and you know the nabob is specifically you know the the Englishman who goes to India and then you know acquires wealth. 
and that turns out to be the way that that uh, spoiler alert spoiler alert <laughs> that Emily and, and Ned are able to to settle they they have already settled they decide initially they're going to get married even if they don't have a fortune but you know between the two of them and but then of course you know the that you have the, the reunion the long last father uh, you know from whom Emily's been separated and uh, and he's he's bringing back a, f- a fortune from from India very conveniently so that then it's they can, so convenient yeah 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 so then they can be you know fully on par with some of the other elite mm-hmm. characters that you know they're who are in their friend and family circle so let's return back to the one of the opening questions which is is this a British novel or is this a Canadian novel should we duke it out <laughs> yeah well and it's interesting how much uh, critical effort has been spent on this question I think that's a telling you know point in itself to consider and you know within the field of 18th century studies to you know to go back to the question of why I'm on this show in the first place <laughs> uh, there's been a really interesting shift in the last few decades within 18th century studies towards what's sometimes known as the global 18th century and so mm-hmm. I remember when I took my third year 18th century literature course at McMaster University, low many years ago, uh, <laughs> and you know we used the the sort of Jeffrey Tillotson, and that was sort of the standard textbook. It was really very narrow in compass the the Tillotson in terms of you know the geographic range that was represented, and and for many years even you know the you know, the division between those who studied different kinds of continental, mm-hmm. you know, sort of literatures during this period was quite wide, and certainly then between British and continental too. And, you know, that was something that, you know, just was not really taken into account in, in sort of the, in understanding the period is, so, I mean, we've, we've always been global. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to, to kind of really understand what's happening in in England in the 18th century. I mean, of course, you, you need to know Scotland, you need to know Ireland, but, you know, you need to know far more than that, really, especially since this was, you know, the, the age of commerce and the age of colonialism. And uh, it can't be so narrowly circumscribed. No, no. And I know that, you know, there's a debate within you know, Canadian literature, you know, sort of pre-Confederation, you know, what, when does Canadian exactly. literature start historically? And, exactly. You know, but maybe those are ultimately not the most useful questions to be asking. They're not productive questions. They don't, they, they don't help us to conceive of literature in these broader ways, more informed ways. Yes, exactly. And what we really should be looking for are the connections, you know, rather than the divisions. And, that to me seems the, the most productive approach and and mm-hmm. I feel as if the range of my own interests has really expanded you know as in the course of my career as a as an 18th centuryist uh, you could say so and this is the reason I've had Dr. Reddy today on the show with me Kate thank you for joining me today on Getting Lit with Linda are there any final words or any parting remarks that you'd like to make Oh, this is a, a really interesting novel. There's so many other things that we could have talked about. 
some of those the scenes, the descriptions, the famous description of uh, particularly approaching the city of Quebec. And that's that's still sort of one of the most often well, let's cited talk about passages. That. I think we should talk about that. Yeah, well, we I haven't given you any quotations from the... Give us so a, I could just a little bit of a taste, you know, before we... Uh, That'd be super. You know, we part. This is, again, very early on in, in the novel. And, and Edward is sort of giving his, his first impressions. And he says, Nothing can be more striking than the view of Quebec as you approach. It stands on the summit of a boldly rising hill at the confluence of two very beautiful rivers, the St. Lawrence and the St. Charles, and as the convents and other public buildings first meet the eye, appears to great advantage from the port. The island of Orleans, the distant view of the cascade of Montmorency, and the opposite village of Beauport, scattered with a pleasing irregularity along the banks of the river St. Charles, add greatly to the charms of the prospect. And you know, you've got the sublime and also the picturesque, the picturesque which is asso- well. associated with irregularity and basically anything that would make a good picture was, I think, the standard <laughs> definition <laughs> of the picturesque, which is always an odd, an odd definition, a little self-referential there. But that sense of, of you know, this evocation of, of Canada, very early Canada, it is still, you know, one of the the sort of big sources of interest in reading this, this it's novel. It's one too. of the reasons it's included in Canadian literary canons or taught in Canadian literary courses at the university level. It's simply that it does, as you say, evoke these images of Canada in very striking ways. Again, it gives us this early view of how Canada was being perceived. Yeah. The representation of winter. Exactly. I mean, it's, it, oh, this huge. this is a magnificent aspect yes. of the novel. I yeah. have to say, and the and it actually is a is a really kind of a positive. I mean, they they have a lot of of fun and frolic in the <laughs> in the in the winter. It's not actually represented as as oppressive. It, it's sort of magical in lots of ways, which is I think very interesting. You know, a lot of of what you get is. You know, it's it's the different social rounds and mm-hmm. uh, this kind of sense of, of this this social world mm-hmm. that's full, even though this is not, you know, metropolitan <laughs> Europe. <laughs> yeah, which is really a fun part of the novel. I think you may have persuaded a few listeners to read this novel. So I hope so. Thank you, Kate, so much Thank for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me. me. It's been a great, great pleasure. Thank you. So that again was Dr. Catherine Reddy from the University of Winnipeg joining me today on Getting Lit with Linda to talk about The History of Emily Montague by Frances Brooke. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to join us in two weeks' time again with Getting Lit with Linda. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.